Okay, all right. So we are looking at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Uh, so God is looking for him. Where are you? Where are you? But he runs away and he hides in the trees, both he and his wife. And the excuse he has for hiding is that I was naked and I hid myself. So he feels too exposed. He doesn't want to deal with God at this moment, uh, right after he's just sinned. And there's this kind of like cover up. You know, they've covered themselves up with the fig leaves um, turned into underpants and they don't want to look at each other after they sinned but also now they don't want to look at God and they're running away and um, this is symptomatic again of having sinned but also feeling that shame um, not wanting other people to see the thing that they're ashamed of uh, not least God and God said verse 11 who told you that you were naked have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So this kind of like hiding, running away and blaming other people. This is how we deal with our sin. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's maybe symptomatic of the sin itself. Again, uh, not wanting to own up to the responsibility or even saying sorry, but also blaming other people. Um, I, I think um, for us, at least already, uh, we have to be very careful of how we justify the things that we do by saying other people are wrong. You know, because it's a mark of unrepentance it's a mark of a broken relationship with God. You know, here is God looking for them, looking for them, and they run away from him. And the moment he confronts them, have you done this thing? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You know, they could have said all kinds of things. They could have said, yep, I'm so sorry, God. But they say it's the other person's fault. And I find that really interesting. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. And they blame anyone and everyone else except themselves. In fact, the man blames God, the woman whom you, you God, put here to be with me. Um, so blame culture, you know, is something that is indicative of unrepentance before God, but also a broken relationship with God. And uh, I think just for us as Christians, you know, if we claim to have uh, dealt with this problem of sin and we have this reconciled relationship, I think uh, for myself at least, it's just worth asking, who am I always looking to as the scapegoat, uh, as the reason why I'm doing certain things that people are pointing out at me? If they say something, Calvin, why are you doing this thing? We don't think it's maybe a loving thing, a good thing to do. And the first instinct for me to, to do is to say, hey, that person over there is worse. 
or that person over there is the one that tempted me or um, caused me to stumble in this way, that's still not repentance. That's not actually saying sorry, and that's actually making things worse. So I think I need to be very careful about that. And maybe as Christians, we just need to look out for that. I think, again, not to blame people, but just to recognize that, hey, this is actually one of the knock-on effects of what it means to not deal with the problem, with our sin. Uh, Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. It's interesting, above all the livestock. Uh, Earlier on, um, the, the serpent was described right in the beginning as the most crafty, the smartest of all the animals. Now he's cursed of all the animals, kind of like the curse of humiliation, maybe. Yeah, compared to everyone else, you're going to be now the worst and most looked down upon. Uh, It continues on, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You know, even this picture of it, crawling on its belly, eating dust, means it's just lowered the serpent's position even within creation. And uh, it's just worth thinking why God does this. Why does God curse? Why doesn't he just kill the serpent? And I think it's indicative of the serpent's pride. The serpent's pride in wanting to take over the position of the man and even of God in influencing the man. And so uh, God curses the serpent at the point which which really hurts. You know, it's almost like giving the Cambridge graduate uh, the lowest position in the company. You know, your job is to clean the toilets or to staple uh, paper. They're doing something that's demeaning. Then they go, oh, you know, I have a Cambridge degree. I don't deserve to do this. But that's why God gives the serpent this kind of curse. And there's more. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity. I will put enmity. Uh, that's a big word. I'll make you enemies. Put it that way. So you and a woman are going to be lifelong enemies and your kids as well are going to be at war between one another, between your offspring, Satan's offspring, and a woman's offspring. There's going to be this perpetual war and conflict between both descendants leading up to a final battle because it talks about a singular person fighting against Satan, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, So there's going to be this ultimate battle that will result in death. Um, You will bruise his heel. You will strike him. Imagine a snake biting the heel. You know, if if it's venomous, he will kill you, right? I mean, so it's not not just bruise, but, you know, the snake with its venom. But also he will crush your head. This will lead towards the ultimate destruction of Satan himself. So it's almost like giving um, a pronouncement of death in the future to someone. It's going to haunt you the rest of your life. Here is the serpent being forced to be humbled amongst all the creatures. And he's saying it's a countdown 
to your ultimate defeat and death. But at the same time, you're going to try to, def- you're going to fight back. You're going to hate this curse. You know, that's why there's going to be this war. You're going to hate the descendants of man because they're going to receive grace. They're going to receive forgiveness, but you're not. And ultimately, you're going to be destroyed by one of the descendants of man. Um, I think theologians call this the first announcement of the gospel, the Protovangelium or something like that. Yeah. Uh, where God actually announces how he's going to deal with death and sin and how he's going to save humankind through Jesus in Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And it's given to the serpent. The first announcement of the gospel is preached to Satan. It's interesting, isn't it? Oh, amazing. Yeah. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Ouch. Um, I think that's already worth pausing at. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And it's saying that actually it wasn't meant to be that painful to have kids. (laughs) And mothers everywhere are going, why? You know, why did God curse me in this way? And um, I think it's at the point of a mother's greatest joy, having children. Um, It's going to be just so painful. There's going to be a cost to it. And um, this is what the curse involves. It's a curse on the point of joy. It's a curse that reminds us what death looks like you know again the the promise that god gave to them that if they broke his rule was that they will surely die and this is what death looks like you know death spoils our joy death infects our life death is not just the end of life but death is something that spoils the whole of life and enable and causes us to not be able to enjoy life itself in this case having children And also, furthermore, in being able to love one another in your marriage relationship. Because God says, verse 15, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. You So even the very thing that God gave to them, one another in this marriage and love relationship, it's going to be filled with arguments and envy and just pain. Um, Your desire will be for you. What's wrong with that? No, desiring your husband, isn't that a good thing? But then he shall rule over you. Already that sounds kind of wrong. And if you just look across the page to Genesis 4, verse 7, there God talks about sin. He's speaking this to Cain. You know, um, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so here sin desires you in a sense that it wants to take control over you. But you must fight sin. You must fight that temptation. And if you apply those two kinds of reactions towards the husband and the wife, it's just not healthy to have the wife desiring to take over the husband's headship and the husband abusing that headship to rule over his wife. But that's a curse. You know, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the judgment of death that is seen in relationship. You know, um, at the heart of God's judgment is a judgment that reflects the broken relationship that we now have with God because of our sin. 
Verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. So he reminds Adam, you know, this is what you did. And there's going to be a curse that will remind you the implications and the nature of your sin. You know, you, you, you disobeyed me. Therefore, God says, um, cursed is the ground because of you. Mm, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. He doesn't curse Adam. He curses the ground. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So there's this connection between um, the ground producing thorns and thistles and you having to eat of the ground. So you're dependent upon the earth because you need food, you're trying to plant vegetables and that kind of thing, but you grow thorns and thistles, you grow weeds. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. Uh, but again, uh, God says, this is, will remind you of your sin. And so the ground rebelling against you will remind you of your rebellion against me. You know, this is what the judgment is meant to do. It's meant to remind you of what it is that we've done, how it is that we've sinned, and what is the cost of our sin against God. There's a broken relationship. You know, we no longer are able to face God. We keep rebelling against God. Perhaps that's what it's saying. But also when we see, we are reminded of this whenever creation rebels against us. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you are taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return again this picture of eating uh, maybe it's talking about how we have to continue working the ground you know you hate your job you, tomorrow is uh, the beginning of a new working day working year and some people are not looking forward to it because you know you just hate you know going back to the office or going back to that assignment but you have to eat, you need the job, you need the pay. And so the sweat of the face is indicative of how you can't really enjoy that job. You can't really find a satisfaction in your identity even in that job you're doing, no matter how good it is, no matter how much pay you get, it's going to be hard, it's going to be stressful, and it's an indication of how God has cursed the ground. It's a reminder that, you know, we no longer are able to rule the earth the way that God intended it. You know, God has given it this mandate, this responsibility, and this image to be able to rule the earth in his stead. But because we've rebelled against God, creation now rebels against us. And um, till you return to the ground for your dust to dust, you shall return. And so again, it's a reminder of that impending death. You know, one day we will die, we will be buried, we will be returned to the ground. But that death actually is something that we suffer in life. So the sweat, the stress, the hating of the job, hating going in Mondays or Tuesday in tomorrow's case, you know, it's a reminder of death. You know, death is not just something that happens in the end. Death is something that infects all of our life. And it affects us at the point of our joy, of our identity, of our purpose. Verse 20, the man called his wife name Eve, wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. 
So there's a sign of grace now after those pronouncements of judgment and death. You know, God covers up the thing that they're ashamed of and with more permanent garments rather than just fig leaves. You know, these are skins. And so we're not sure where he gets the skins from. You know, were animals sacrificed for this? We don't know. But there is an implication there that God is trying to deal with the problem. He's not just saying, aha, you suffer. But, you know, these are signs of grace that God wants us to learn and maybe look back to God to see and maybe hope for a solution to our sin. Then the Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so let me think about this, what's happened. Um, God uh, essentially kicks him out of Eden to keep him from the tree of life. Is that right? Yeah, so it's, it's for his own good. You know, it's so that he doesn't take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God doesn't want this condition of sin and death to be prolonged. Is that fair to say? That somehow the solution to this is not just giving him life or giving him prolonged life, but that until the problem of sin is dealt with, until the problem of death is dealt with, you know, life needs to be held from us so that we can receive it in the future after that problem has been dealt with. I'm probably not saying this very, very well. I'm, I'm just thinking of this on the fly, but there seems to be um, an incompleteness to the story now. It's pointing forward to, to how, um, you know, it raises questions like, you know, why would God do this? You know, why wouldn't God want us to live forever? Um, and why is God keeping us from Eden? Why did he kick him out? But it shows that actually God is thinking about this problem and God maybe has already a solution in mind that God wants to deal with first before he brings us back to this position of receiving eternal life. And uh, again, you know, looking back just to Genesis 3.15, there's that announcement of the gospel of how God needs to deal with death. And he says to the serpent again, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So the way back to life is through the death of this one descendant of the woman. You know, God is going to deal with our death by taking our death and putting it on this son. God is going to destroy Satan by sending a son to, dis to bruise his head to do battle with Satan. And all this is pointing forward to our need for a savior, our hope for a, um, a, um, a solution that will come in an individual, one person, one descendant of Eve, who will come and fight for us, who will die for us, and bring us back to this relationship with God in eternal life. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. 
but yeah, that, that's been just my reflections on the rest of Genesis chapter three. There's just so much here. Yeah. Um, and thank you if you've joined me this far. And I do apologize if it isn't as polished as, you should, as it should be. Uh, but yeah, happy new year. Um, and um, thank you for joining me on another episode of the Daily Bible Reading Show. Take care and God bless. Bye. Shh.